I think it's important as a leader because it's important to understand that expectations and reality clash so frequently, but you can't let the fact that you didn't meet your goal today mean that you failed. You have to understand the ugly day-to-day process of it, just that it's a long game and you have to be willing to play, right? I mean, we have to be there to hold them accountable. We have to be there to stop what we can and to shine a light on what's happening. The commitment to being an engaged citizen is a commitment to being an engaged leader. Or to put it simply, engaged leaders are engaged citizens, and engaged citizens are engaged leaders. And in today's deeply polarized culture, that's hard work. It can feel like resting in the midst of that work is like tapping out of the biggest fight for your life. But being an engaged citizen requires rest. And rest is not tapping out. Rest is a necessary practice for actually staying engaged for the long haul. Without rest, you won't have the energy to question the people and the institutions in power. You won't have the capacity to extend care to those who are often forgotten or underestimated. Without rest, you won't be able to keep up with being an engaged citizen and an engaged leader in your community. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Taking care of yourself is the only way to be the kind of leader you truly want to be. Today, I'm hearing more and more from leaders who are prioritizing leading with justice, equity, and community care in mind. So if the kind of leader you truly want to be means being an engaged citizen, it is one who is informed about the social and political issues facing the people they lead, well, you're in good company. When you make the choice to invest your energy into staying informed about social and political issues, You're investing in your leadership. Now, I've been engaged in the political process since I was a kid. My mom was involved in the League of Women Voters, which often did drives to get women registered to vote. And in college, I worked internships on the municipal, state, and federal levels. And I encountered so many people who had strong feelings about not voting and learning about the issues and candidates on the latest election ballot. I would walk away frustrated and dejected from these conversations with friends, family, and colleagues over the years. I felt there's so much power and still do in our collective power to lead with our votes. (laughs) But I've heard from plenty of people who don't agree. And here's the hard truth. Many are counting on your fatigue and disconnection. Yes, people are literally counting on you not caring. What gets your attention and your care is where you send your power. And these days, the distractions and the noise are enough for anyone to tap out. Even I have felt the weight of it all, especially over the last year. So what can we do in our circles of influence to encourage others to join us in paying attention? How can we do our parts in leading and engaged citizenry? Well, my next guest on The Unburdened Leader has some wise direction for us all. State Representative Jennifer Confirst is starting her second term in the Iowa House of Representatives, where I interned in college, serving residents of Windsor Heights, Clive, and West Des Moines. 
she was selected by her caucus to serve in leadership as Democratic Whip. Now, Jennifer is an associate professor at Drake University School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Prior to starting Drake in 2013, she worked for more than a dozen years at Iowa PBS doing communication and on-air fundraising. She also worked in Chicago doing corporate communications for Fannie Mae, and she's provided communications counsel in several roles in her career. Now, Representative Confers has a bachelor's and a master's degree from Jake University, which also happens to be my alma mater. Very, very proud of my association with Drake. Now, notice how Jennifer distinguishes between opponents and enemies. I loved this and why it's so helpful to follow her practice. Listen for Jennifer's actionable wisdom on how to consume and share information wisely these days. Man, this information, we need to scale this and get it out. And pay attention to what contributed to Jennifer's shift in perspective on her why for running for elected office again after losing her first race and how her grief about that first race showed up and clarified her next steps. Now, it is such an honor to welcome State Representative Jennifer Confers to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I am thrilled to be here and to see you. Oh my gosh. You know, it's, I think it's worth noting before we kick off, you and I go way back, like way. Like back. 1993 way back. Is that, Am I not supposed oh. to say that out loud? Oh, I have no problem with that. Oh, I'm turning 50. It was 92. Mm-hmm. I have a picture of you and me with yeah. Hillary Clinton in, in Des Moines, Iowa. And like my hair was like this freeze and shine masterpiece of something. (laughs) So yeah, no, we go way back. We met, I think during that campaign and then you interned out in Washington, DC for Senator Harkin when I was working for him. But I had met your dad who is a veteran journalist for the AP before I'd met you. So anyways, just, we have lots of stories and I'm so excited to talk to you today. I've loved that we've stayed in touch over the years and have always valued your perspective um, and your insight on all things going on, kind of politics, journalism, culture. And you, you're so sharp that combine that with integrity and stamina. So I'm thrilled for people to get to know you. And I, I want to start off our conversation today with talking about your first run for office. You're a state representative in Iowa, in the Iowa House. And I want you to share with us what the stakes for you when you was decided to run for public office. Walk us through the decision-making process and the obstacles you had to overcome with your first race. Sure. So I first was approached to run in 2014 and was thrilled that it wasn't the right time for my family because I was too scared to do it and it was great to have an excuse. And then in um, the summer of 2015, some things happened at our state that I just wasn't thrilled about. And then when I was approached again, I had to think about it differently. And, you know, my whole career, as you know, has been working behind the scenes, helping other people look good, writing speeches for senators and politicians and CEOs, writing press releases, pitching stories to reporters. And so it was very different to be the one who was sort of the focal point. And I have to tell you that the first press release I wrote for my to announce my run in 2015, I sent it off to our comms person and he said, are you interested in winning or 
why did you write the press release this badly? And I said, well, excuse me, this is what I do for a living. And he goes, well, I know, but it seems very clear that you're not interested in touting yourself at all. And so it was really a mindset shift for me because essentially my press release was like, she's okay. You know, (laughs) she's all right. She's running. And he was like, you have to get comfortable um, touting your strengths and uh, doing that in a way that's really putting yourself out there. And it was very hard. You know, it was uh, not what I was comfortable with. I, you know, I'm not shy. I can walk into a room and have great conversations, but asking things of people is hard for me. And so when I had to first make phone calls and ask for votes, when I had to first make phone calls and ask for money, when I had to go up to strangers' doors and ask them to trust this sacred thing, their vote in me, it took a lot of sort of internal work to remind myself that I was doing this for a reason. And the best advice I got was, remember when you're asking for money or asking for votes, you're not asking them to support you. You're asking them to support your ideas and you're the vessel to get those ideas out there. And that was much better for me because I could separate it from myself a little better. And that was important. So deciding to run was quite a process. I had two teenagers at the time. I had a 16, a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and um, they wanted nothing to do with any of it. They just wanted to know if I'd still be able to go to baseball games and, you know, coach mock trial. And and my husband was very nervous about me being okay. You know, he wasn't, he, he's, he has a hard time when people criticize me. And so this was certainly going to set that up. And we can talk about, you know, the half a million dollars and negative ads that were run against me and how that went or losing, you know, wherever you want to go with this. <laughs> you know, and I do want to get into that. And I mean, a half a million dollars spent to say you suck. That's just a a moment there. We'll circle back to that. You said something that stuck with me too, is that in that press release, you know, and and your colleague was saying, hey, you need to promote yourself and own your strengths and your talents. And you said it was a mindset shift. And it just got me thinking how uncomfortable it is for so many people to own it, not with that puffed up hubris, you know, sugary, bro-y kind of way, but just to be like, yeah, here's where I'm good at and really own it, especially women. I think so. And, you know, it's really a two-step process for me. It was first convincing myself, like, who do I think I am that I could be in the legislature? Like, so that was a huge step for me, right? To convince myself internally that I had the skills and then to go up and convince other people when I had just convinced myself a week before, you know, it was, it was a huge jump and it is uncomfortable to do that. I think it's harder when you're authentic about it than it is when you are puffed up as you described it. You know, it's harder when you're trying to be honest and authentic about your skills and abilities than when you can hide behind a mask of, of confidence, you know? Yeah. Like to really believe we are what we're saying, right? I mean, that in itself is such a powerful leap. And if we can get there to really own it, and there's nothing like politics that you will sink or swim right. <laughs> in that. Exactly. You know, you know I, I think I, st- I got to circle back though, too. I think, did we meet? We both went to Drake University. Mm-hmm. We're, so we're Drake Bulldog alums. Did we meet on the Clinton Gore presidential campaign effort or do we meet at university first. We I can't met, remember. We met at the Democratic National Convention. Um, that was, ex- my, oh, in New York City. That was my City. 21st birthday. Yes. That's when I spent my 20th. Yes, you remember now. <laughs> it was my trick. It was my trip for high school graduation. And I went to the convention with my dad and my mom. And they had said, we'll go to New York. And then one night you can go to the convention. Well, all I wanted to do was be at the convention the whole time. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to go see the sites. I wanted to be in the hall. 
And my dad had met you somewhere along the way and found out you were at Drake. And I think wanted someone to look out for me at Drake. And so he had said, there's this woman, you should get to know her. And so I met you, I think in like the lobby or in an elevator even at the mm-hmm. DNC. And then uh, we connected on the Clinton Gore campaign that fall. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then there were, those were the memories. Oh yes. my gosh. Yes. <laughs> so much fun memories. It's all starting to come back to me. Okay. So thank you for the squirrel moment. Um, <laughs> so I want to go back to... so really just putting yourself out there. This is for anyone putting themselves out there, but politics is this whole new beast. And and many people in the country are familiar with Iowa to an extent because I was known for the Iowa caucuses, but politics in Iowa is like such a part of the culture in every corner of the state because of the caucuses. It is just a big deal and people are really engaged. And so I think running for office, it, it's it's just to set that up that it is a big deal. It isn't something you operate below the radar on any level right. <laughs> in that state. And so you mentioned too that you ran in 2015, you ran mm-hmm. for the first time? For the time? 2016 election. Yep. For the 2016 election. And you lost. You lost mm-hmm. that first race. So talk us through what went through your mind when you lost that first campaign. So I always like to say I lost and then I won, spoiler alert, and uh, I prefer winning, but I'm glad I lost, right? Because it teaches me a lot. So the the last month of the campaign had been pretty ugly. I ran against them a House majority leader, and by definition, he has all the money. He controls where the money gets spent in every election cycle. And I should say that in Iowa, half a million dollars is a lot of money for for a state house race. And that was spent on a lot of television that was stretching the truth a little bit. A and little bit? A little? <laughs> a little. Enough, just a little? <laughs> just enough for the lawyers to say, the way they're wording it means we can't ask them to pull it. Like it was just that close. It was a wording choice. Oh. And it was embarrassing. You know, my son got teased at school. That was pretty awful. That was probably the hardest moment because oh. I had built up sort of that hard candy shell a little bit. But my kids didn't ask for this. And so that was hard. But yeah, so the last month of the campaign was terrible. We ran ads. We tried to raise enough money to go up on TV and and compete. And we did. And I lost by 500 votes. And this is in 2016 when there was just a a wave across the country. And it was not a great night for my party. I'm a Democrat. And I was sitting there with my then 16-year-old daughter watching her watch Hillary Clinton become president, we thought. And her mom, right? She was going to be inspired by two women winning that night. And so the first night I was pretty focused on her. I accepted I I had lost, but I was sort of detached from it because I was watching her heart be broken. And this isn't a political statement. This is just watching my daughter who wanted Hillary Clinton to win. She had wanted to caucus at the age of seven. She'd wanted to caucus for Hillary Clinton in the 2007, 2008 caucuses. That's how long she's been wanting to support this candidate. And so to watch her watch her lose was sort of a distraction for us. And I was pretty okay. I was like, well, you know, it was a long shot. I knew it was an uphill battle. It was a hard battle to fight. And I was really okay until the first day of the legislative session. And I am a nerd and I watched the legislative session on my computer. And when everyone gaveled in, I was heartbroken. I was like, that's when I lost it. I had, I had taken, exactly. I had taken all of January off from teaching in case I won so I had nothing to do. So I was sitting around oh. the house by myself, eating everything in sight, by the way, and just devastated. So I will tell you a moment I'm not very proud of. And that is 
The Women's March was the day after inauguration in 2017, as you remember. And it was a huge movement and wonderful for our country, for my party, for women. It was a huge moment. And on that first day of session, which was the Monday before, I decided I wasn't going to go. And I didn't go because I was so angry that everyone was awake now and they hadn't been three months ago when I needed them. I felt very betrayed, irrationally, but very betrayed. Like, oh yeah, where were you? When I was asking you to knock on doors in September and October and I was telling you this was important and you couldn't be bothered and now you're all up and out and marching, where were you? And I know that's an immature response and I wouldn't respond that way now. But I think it was finally my defenses being let down and me realizing that I felt betrayed by the system, maybe less so even than women, but I, I kind of placed it there, you know? So it's interesting that you're not proud of that. And as as someone who's worked with trauma my whole clinical career, that feels very healthy and normal. You didn't stay there, but it, it's almost a part of the process to like the veil pulled out. Everyone said, what the heck happened? We're going to engage and mobilize. This is beyond, almost beyond politics. This is about humanity and safety and so much. And you just were hit like, it, like there's the part of you. What I'm hearing is, is this feels too little too late, y'all. Yeah. Like, and you had to take a beat for that, like just yeah. to, feel through that. What? How long did you stay there and, and what moved you through that? So a friend of mine posted a picture from the uh, rally at the Capitol with a sign that said con first in 18, oh. which was very sweet. But I will tell you that that first night I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to run again. I'm never doing this again. Why would I do this? You know, and what they don't tell you is that when you run a second time, you're starting your race on third base. That's combining two analogies, but in the last hundred yards, right? So you're not starting from scratch again because your name ID is there. You know how to do this. You've talked to voters already. You're not starting from scratch. So really the first race serves kind of as a tee up for the second. I didn't know that at the time. And so I was like, never. And then I will say that on at the end of January, so very early in the session, the Iowa legislature with a new trifecta, they had the governor's office, the Senate and the house for the first time ever gutted collective bargaining rights. They took away the rights of public employees to, you know, have a say in their own future at work. And I had knocked on 13,000 doors and not one person had told me that was a priority of theirs. I had looked at all of my opponents' news or, or, you know, mailers and emails and never did he mention this was a priority. And I was furious. So it went from mad at other people to maybe more channeled to mad at my opponent. And I decided in April I was going to run again. So I sat with it probably for, you know, six months. I'm just thinking of that dead time at the beginning of the year. And you're a professor at our alma mater now at Drake University, and you had taken time off. So you were optimistic. And so sitting with that, so it took a few months. That's not a lot of time. If you, I mean, honestly, to really move through that and your anger stayed instead of the blame, you moved out of blame and shame to almost this righteous action. Like, okay, if I feel this, I still care that I need to do something about it. That's what I'm hearing. Exactly. Exactly. So and it felt like, sorry, it felt like I was, it felt better because I was fighting for someone else. I felt like all of those union workers I had talked to, all of those folks who just wanted a say in their own work, all of the other things, I mean, the legislature did terrible things all year. I felt like now I wasn't running for me at all. 
I was running to stop what they were doing and to help other people. And then it became much easier, right? Gosh, this this is really powerful, right? It's, it wasn't something that you were doing for you. It became bigger than you. Right. Gosh, I really appreciate this. When we're wanting to do something, when it's bigger than just a sense of pride or if we're stuck in that shame blame cycle, but to, that for the, for now or for that, when you, for the 2018 election, it became about how do I stop this? This is important. I want to be a part of the solution. That right. is that is powerful. I, I want you to talk a little bit because I remember, I still remember being slack jawed when you were, I don't know if you were, we were texting about this or talking, but you told me a little bit about your second campaign and you ran against the same opponent for a bit. So finish the story here because this, okay. this again, this is a doozy. I know. I mean, it's one of those things. So first I'll say that in 2016, I felt like I was running for issues. And in 2018, I felt like I was running for people. And that I think oh. was another way you know, that it was more personal to me. Um, in 20s, I was, it was sort of amorphous equality, fairness, you know, and then it was the people I had talked to. So that helped. Okay. So in 2018, I decided, I announced, so I lost in November, announced in April of 20, 2017, I was running again for 2018 and I ran against the majority leader again. And I spent the next year, well, 11 months, you know, running against him, talking about his votes, talking about his record, talking about how I would do things differently. And then the filing deadline in Iowa is mid-March. And so for the first time ever, my family was on a spring break trip because my previous job, I had always had to be working during spring break. So for the first time ever, we were at Disney World and I was at Epcot in line for Spaceship Earth. And I get a phone call that my opponent, the majority leader of the house, had announced that he was moving to a different district and running in that district instead. That he was no longer going to run against me. He was going to run in an open seat about 10 miles away. And <laughs> I have to tell you, I couldn't believe it. Like we had been running against each other for a year. It was the day before the filing deadline. And he announces that he's moving. And not only is he moving, but he's going to run again in a different district. And so what's weird to me is that I then served with my opponent <laughs> for two years because he had moved and I ran against somebody else who was a fill-in sort of, and I had lost by 500 votes. And then in 2018, I won by 15%. <laughs> so it was a it's, big shift. And, 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 and so I thought this is telling because the numbers at the time when he moved, you were pulling ahead of him, right? right. Yeah. And you and you were also outraising him mm -hmm. in fun fundraising too. So, you know, it, it's just it's just worth noting, like, you know, what people do to avoid losing. <laughs> yes. It's very rare. And you know, I think one other thing I would say, and I don't mean to get like too philosophical about this, but the freedom that comes after you've lost is huge. Because the worst thing that could happen has already happened. You know, I will be publicly embarrassed. Everyone who works so hard for me will watch me lose. It's already happened. Right. So if when I ran again, it was like, well, this will be my last. If I if I lose this time, I know for sure it's a done deal. But I don't want to waste two years of work, which I could leverage into a win if I could. And so then when he moved, it was like a curveball. I mean, I don't think that's ever happened. I don't think that someone has, especially a member of leadership, has left in a non redistricting year and run in a different district. It was pretty weird. That's a very humanizing way to name it. We'll leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but what you're touching on too about about losing leads to my next question about how has running 
for state representative, and then also navigating all that you have to with the legislative process, trying to get legislation passed, the committee process. And I interned for the House Majority Leader back when we were in university. So I, I got to see that state process and what it was like to create a bill and, and how hard and tedious it can be. How has all of that impacted your relationship with failure overall? Well, it's a real good thing I lost the first time because we lose almost every day in the minority. <laughs> um, I mean, we, you know, our, our victories have to be redefined in many ways. You know, a victory has to be sort of proving a negative. What can we keep out of a bill? What bill don't we debate? You know, every day, I always tell supporters who are reaching out about school vouchers, for example, every day we don't vote we don't bring up school vouchers on the floor of the Iowa House is a victory because that means they don't have the votes and that means that the pressure is working. And so it's almost like our victories are, you know, in the in the negative space. But, you know, the victories are also you have to find ways to redefine failure and success. I mean, you know, during the pandemic, it's constituents who needed me, who needed my help and I was able to help them. That became my victory. Right. I might fail on a leadership. Every bill that I've ever introduced has died you know, I've I've only had one amendment run with my name on it, and that's because Republicans let me. You know, we we just don't have any any capacity, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be there, right? I mean, we have to be there to hold them accountable. We have to be there to stop what we can and to shine a light on what's happening. But you know, helping constituents, somebody get their unemployment check, somebody get connected to resources with Medicaid. You know, I mean, those things are where where the victories come in now. I love that reframe. And it's not losing focus on my bill didn't get passed. It's also I'm here to support my district and support the people in the district and reclaiming what is a victory and keeping the failures in perspective. I think that's yeah. powerful. I think the other question I have for you, I think for any leader, anyone who's putting themselves out there in any capacity, small or large, ends up being misunderstood and often in politics misrepresented. And, and on issues you care about or who you are, how are you, how have you navigated that and caring? How do you care for yourself through all of that? So Rebecca, I'm probably doing it in a non-psychologically healthy way. <laughs> so we're, we're just going to say that right now. Be, be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I really just sort of think of myself as there are two of me. There's representative Conferst, who is a caricature in many ways. And then there's Jennifer Conferst, who's a very different person. And and I don't mean that we're, we have different goals or anything like that. It's just that when they're talking about me, they're talking about representative Conferst. So an example uh, I would give you is that, and I have to do that, right? That's self-preservation for me. You know, it's, the, well, and I'll get to that. But, you know, I, I ran for House Minority Whip last November. And that's the second, it's like a deputy leader in the caucus. And when I won, the Republican Party chair said that Democrats have just selected the most liberal member of the Democratic caucus to be their House whip, which is hilarious to me because I'm getting yelled at by liberals all the time for not being liberal enough. And so, but I had to remember, and it like for a minute I was mad. And then I was like, oh, well, that's not me. They're, that's what he has to do, right? And I think that's where a background in communications comes in very handy. Like knowing what I would say if I were in their shoes helps to prepare myself for what they're going to say about me, you know, and I can sort of separate myself from it. So let me unpack this because I'm not sure I see it as unhealthy is you recognize that the gen the representative conference who's being attacked is not who you are in your entirety. So there's a differentiation of 
what you called the caricature. Am I mm-hmm. hearing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I I feel like it's not healthy because I'm not being fully authentic when I look at that person as a caricature. You know, when I look look at that person mm-hmm. as a two-dimensional character. And, and authenticity is really important to me. And so sometimes I feel bad that I don't feel as bad about it. Like, I feel like, am I too disconnected from it? I mean, that's not to say never. I mean, last night I cried on the drive home. I'm not going to lie. Like, I was mad. But but I, there are a lot of times, especially when there are personal attacks, you know, that it's like, okay, you don't even know me. And <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know what you're saying. And, and I guess it's letting up control to some extent. You know, it's letting, realizing that I can't control what they're going to say. Yeah, I guess what I, what I make up is if they knew all of you, they would have no argument. So they have to make up a you that's not true. Hmm. And that's, you know, and so they're using your name and your image and sometimes your words or twisting your words, mm-hmm. but you're able, you're, you're able to differentiate that and you have compassion <laughs> and maybe even feel bad that you're not defending that, what you call the caricature, mm-hmm. but that's really just what your opponents or, I mean, in, in many ways, so many people are just angry these days. There's so much understandable anger. There's so much hurt and deep wounding and the way that we do conflict. I mean, gosh, back when you and I cut our teeth in this, it was still bad, but you and I saw people with incredibly opposing viewpoints come together and even socialize. They would like fight it out on the floor, whatever it's city, state, federal levels that we, you know, we've all engaged in. And and then like, it was, it was mind blowing to me to see those relationships happen. I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, you're always an enemy. Oh, wait, you can deeply disagree and still have a humanizing relationship. And that really fell apart. I think after 9-11, it was bad in 94 after the 94 election, but Mm -hmm. you know, after 9-11, I really saw that shift. And so, yeah, go ahead. It was bad. I was just going to say that for me, I always try to differentiate between opponents and enemies, you know, the the Republicans are my opponents, right? I mean, very few of them are enemies because it's about, we're playing, I mean, not that it's a game, not that it's not important, but we're all, we have, we have the same goal, different ways to get there, you know, make Iowa better, different definitions of what Iowa is. And so for me, it's always about think of them as opponents, not enemies. Now, the Iowa House might think of the Iowa Senate as an enemy sometimes, <laughs> but that's a different conversation altogether. But yeah, I mean, I remember I used to go to the Capitol when I was little with my dad, and I know we're going to talk about that a little too. And I remember once the Speaker of the House, Don Evenson, in his office, Don Evenson was a huge, big, loud presence. He was screaming at a member of the other party, like screaming. And I was nine. So I was just, oh my gosh. And so I, and then they came out and they were laughing and they said, let's go get a beer. And I said to my dad, how does it work? Like they're yelling at each other and then they get along and he goes, it doesn't work any other way. And I've never forgotten that because we see when it's dysfunctional. We see what happens when nobody's talking to each other. Okay. So the difference between an opponent and an enemy, an enemy, it feels like the quality of that is my life's at stake, my livelihood, safety is at stake. My opponent is just someone I'm competing against, like, like a sport for lack of, is, am I, am I picking up on this differentiation? That's how I see it. And, and, and the, the nuance there is that that's not, again, that's not to say that the things we're fighting for aren't important or personal. Cause sometimes people will say, well, enemies are personal opponents are professional. And that's not how I want to look at it because I think that the issues we're fighting for are incredibly personal and I can't believe they do stuff and I get mad at them. And, but I mean, I don't see them as, I honestly don't see them as terrible people. I mean, I don't have any sort of personal animus toward any of them. 
And some people do, right? It's just a different approach. I think that's for me the way I survive because tomorrow I might need them, right? Tomorrow we might be on the same side of something. Mm. So, I mean, rarely, <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, I, I really appreciate this nuance. And I think in, in a time where we critique for blood sport, you know, it helps to slow my role <laughs> when I'm like, are they an enemy? And most people really, you know, is my life or well-being at stake? And there's that perceived, especially in politics mm-hmm. or, or on business. I mean, any leadership position where reputation feels like it's everything. Mm-hmm. But to have a little bit of space between that, even if others are getting nasty, I really appreciate that. I, I want to ask you too, do you have any reoccurring fears or vulnerabilities that keep showing up that threaten your confidence? You're so confident. You're so clear in what you want. You're a deeply caring human. And I know when we care, we're vulnerable yeah. to being hurt. Yeah, I think what I'm incredibly, I try very hard to stay authentic. It's really important to me to just be who I am. And sometimes that lends myself I'm constantly afraid that I'm going to say something that blurt something out, right? That's not appropriate or say something I mean in the moment that I don't mean later. Sort of the cost of that authenticity sometimes is making a mistake. And I worry about that. You know, I worry about offending someone when I don't mean to. And so that's really a fear that continues to pop up is, is being authentic worth it. You know, my, when my kids started middle school, and I've used this analogy today, I said that they had to build that car, hard candy shell like an M&M. And they were so soft and sweet. And then middle school kind of hardened them a little bit, which it should, because it's a terrible place. <laughs> and um, every, every middle school. Tell me what you really think. Tell all, me what you really think. Every middle, middle school, school across the you. planet is a terrible place, <laughs> not because of middle school, but because of, you know, developmentally. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I hated it, but I was also, I also knew they needed it. And, um, but it was also soft enough. You could still get through. And I feel like that sometimes, right? Like I've got a defense built up, but because I try to be authentic, it's not so strong that things that hurt me can't get through or things that I don't mean to say can't get out. So I'm, I'm very afraid that sometimes my authenticity can be read as, as cold or snarky or not exactly what I mean. Okay. Okay, I, I can't let this go by, but even I wonder how much of this is a gender issue too, because I don't think there are a lot of folks who identify as male that worry about that, and right. so it's that 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 uh, tightrope that we walk in our power and our strength and our conviction, but don't be too much, but don't get it not enough, and is is that part of this too for you? I'm you sure think? it is. I'm sure it is, and you know, I mean, being a woman in politics, there are plenty of us. But the higher you rate you go in the ranks, the fewer of you there are. And so many times I am the only woman on a call. And I am Mm. rarely as aware of my gender identity as I am in those moments when, you know, we might be talking about a, a sexual harassment case or something that happens. And I'll look around the room and realize that nobody in the room knows how the woman in the situation feels but me. And then you kind of feel this responsibility for all women. And I can't say I know exactly how she feels, but like more so than they do. And I think of things that they don't think of. And I hate that. I don't want it to be like, oh gosh, you know, because I'm a woman, I can, you know, I have brilliant things to say, but I do think I have a perspective that's different. And I do feel like I have to be more careful and it's not right. And it's not fair. And I fight against it, but also I fall into it. I do think I have a, a 21 year old daughter and our girls are so much stronger and braver and badass. So much. 
than we were so much. And she will say things like, mom, why would you ever think that? And I'm like, well, cause I'm a Gen Xer. We were raised by baby boomers who, I mean, you're like three generations ahead of us, Ellie. Like we are still catching up to you and learning from you because we've got, I've got a lot in me that's ingrained from being raised by baby boomers who, you know, wore white gloves to prom and have, you can't wear white shoes after Labor Day, right? I mean, we've got, it's a big leap. <laughs> it is a big, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I, I, Gen Z is giving me so much hope and I, I love seeing that. I see that in my daughter every day with her questions, her curiosities and the things that she's not afraid to ask. I love it. Okay. So the big catalyst for me having you on the show within the last month, there was some legislation passed in Iowa that also the kind of legislation we're seeing passed across state houses are being presented state houses across our country around voting rights. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is not like a, I like charter schools. I like public schools. It's, you know, I care about education. There isn't like different means to the end. This is the stakes are high and the need for unburdened leaders to be engaged and not to tap out. So I'd love for you, how you so eloquently speak, break down for us the legislation that just passed in Iowa impacting voting rights, along with how this new legislation impacts voters in your state of Iowa. Oh, dear. Now I'm going to get cranky. Yeah. So I'm on the state government committee in the House. And so I've been living with this legislation since it was first introduced and all the steps along the way from subcommittee all the way to floor final passage to the Senate to to the governor's desk. And it's terrible. It's terrible. Like It's terrible, Bill. And so the legislation, we'll talk about that first. It really restricts voting. Iowa had um, the number three voter turnout in the country percentage as a percentage of population in 2020. And that's particularly interesting because we didn't have a statewide coordinated effort to do by mail voting, right? I mean, we mailed out absentee ballots, but that was all handled by county auditors and the Secretary of State's office maybe once. And so it was really Iowans deciding that it was important to vote and doing the extra work they needed to to vote in a pandemic. So it went beautifully. No cases of fraud, huge turnout. Early voting was huge. Iowans were engaged in the process, which I think we can all agree is the point. And so then we get this bill. And what it's doing is it is attacking exactly what succeeded in 2020. So it's shortening the window in which your absentee ballot can be accepted. So it used to be that if you mailed an absentee ballot legally before election day, as long as it was postmarked before election day, it still counted. Now it has to be in by eight o'clock on election day, no matter when you send it in the mail. Okay, well, that's not great because now your vote is reliant on a system you have no control over, the mail, right? So that seems to be disenfranchising right there. The second one is it doesn't allow people to come pick up other people's sealed, signed ballots and deliver them for them if they don't trust the mail. So and let, me just, let me just pause you there, yeah. too, because in Iowa, it is one of the oldest populations in the country. Right. Is, that, is that still the case? Yes. And so you've got a lot of people who can't drive, who, you know, maybe for a variety of reasons, have health issues, sight, you name it, physical limitations. And so that's a real kind of common thing that we would do or or often we would do get vans together and drive people yeah. for the get out the vote effort. So mm -hmm. so you've got two two things so far. I just want to recap. So the first one is limiting the time window. I remember when I was going to school at Drake, we could vote for about a month ahead of time and the libraries even. I was like, that was the coolest thing. And so there was just a voting season, which was lovely for something that's so important as our democracy. And again, it's not about 
what the issues are. It's this actual democracy. And that, that, that to me excites me. So now that period is shortened. And even on election night, if the elect, which office is it that gets the votes? The county auditors. The, the county auditors. Yep. The county audit, county auditor. And, and it's different here in San Diego. Right. So the county auditors at 8 p.m. If there's votes that got held up by a mail truck or something, just your SOL. Yep. Am I right? Is that okay? Yep. All right. So we've got those two points. Yep. What else with so with it also say? shuts up? I mean, so Iowa has polls open until nine o'clock every night, and now they're open until eight. So about sixty five hundred uh, Iowans voted between eight and nine in uh, twenty twenty. So that's disenfranchising thousands of voters. It also makes it so that you cannot have someone come pick up your ballot. So like we said, so you know Iowa has an old population, and also culturally we kind of like to stay in our homes. And so older Iowans stay in their houses longer than they will go to a nursing home or something like that. And and so a lot of times yeah. they do rely on a neighbor or a friend to take a ballot in. And um, now it has to be a caretaker or a family member with absolutely no consideration for the fact that someone might not have family or a caretaker and therefore they're disenfranchised, making it harder to vote. The whole thing just makes it harder to vote. There are a lot of things in there that also frustrate me, like rules with county auditors, makes makes it a class D felony if county auditors do something like, you know, connect a voter to their ballot or reach out, you know, to kind of confirm a ballot has been cast or whatever. I mean, that's kind of in the weeds, but it raises penalties for, for county auditors to a class D felony and oftentimes, which is jail time. What's a class D? Well, yeah, class D felony would, would be what? Class D felony is going to jail. <laughs> I mean, you you go to jail for five to ten years. So if I if I were in that role and I reached out to a voter just to confirm, I'm tab- tabulating everything and say, oh hey, uh, Jane, just what I got. I want to make sure that this is going and this is correct. If, if that gets in the weeds, that I could end up just to make sure that that the, what I have is correct. And I'm verifying with my neighbor, you know, usually it's the neighbor because it's a small town right. and most of these, you know, people know each other right. that could risk me going to jail for five to 10 years in that, if I was in that role. So to be fair, and did that. it depends on how it's interpreted, of course, that's a worst case okay, scenario, sure, but sure. yes, that's a possibility, right? Because that could be seen as fraud because you're chasing a ballot and that's not your job as a county auditor, they say, right? It's a voter's oh, job. Oh, if vote. I was chasing. Yes. Okay. So they just don't. If you, I mean, I don't think that's chasing a ballot. I think that's confirming information, but now you can't. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things like that, county auditors really get dinged. Only one drop box for ballots per county, no matter how big the how county many? is. One. 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 One drop box. Now, and Iowa isn't a very populous state compared to, you know, but it's not. 3.1 million. 3.1 million people. Yeah. And we have so 99 counties. Ballot- 99 counties, and one of those counties has about 750,000 people in it. How many ballot boxes were existing in the 2020 election well, in Iowa? It, Do you know? I don't know statewide, but it depends on the county. And they tried to restrict them as the election season was going on because ballot return boxes are not really a common thing we have in Iowa because it's so easy to right. pick up ballots. And I have to say, I would say that the majority party didn't like the fact that Democrats were out there sending out absentee ballot request forms coming and picking them up, taking them to the Secretary of State's office, and then picking up ballots. Now, you have to know, if I come to Rebecca's house and take her ballot down, I can't see it. I have to give her a receipt that says I've picked up your ballot, and then I deliver it. And if I don't, I get in big trouble, as I should. 
Gotcha. But Democrats will often go and chase ballots. Republicans can do that too. That was a Democratic plan. They call it ballot harvesting, and they wanted to make it illegal. So with all of these things, they just all make it harder for Iowans to vote. Shorten the window when you can request a ballot. Shorten the window for which your ballot can be sent back. Um, shorten some public, you know, public awareness campaigns regarding who's on the ballot, things like that. And what's frustrating to me, first of all, is that Iowa's election system wasn't broken. And what I kept saying was, you guys won. Republicans just swept the state in 2020. I mean, we got, as Democrats, a whooping. And so for them to then come in and want to change it makes no sense to me logically, right? It doesn't make any sense because you won. And so when we asked the floor manager, why are you doing this when our election was so successful? He said several times, I think of the state like a business. And when something goes well, you look at ways to make it better. And then our answer was, but if you sell a lot of things at your store, the answer isn't close your store an hour earlier. (laughs) You know, I mean, when you're going forward. So it just didn't make a lot of sense. So it's part of a national campaign. 33 states across the country were introducing voter restriction laws. Clearly, there is a concerted effort across the state to make it harder to vote to make it harder for Iowans or Americans to cast their vote legally. And in Iowa, we're the only state, I think, left that doesn't automatically re-enfranchise felons when they've met their sentences. Can't seem to get a constitutional amendment on that passed. The governor has signed an executive order on that. But, you know, we just, I mean, you know, you've worked on campaigns. I've Asking someone for their vote is almost sacred in our democracy. They have yeah. won. Yeah, They give it to you because they trust you. That's a huge thing. And to make it harder for them to do that is, I I can't see how you can justify it. I really can't. What do you think is really going on then? So if this is not something that was needed, what is the agenda? So if I'm going to be cynical, I'm going to say that I believe that there is a party that looks at the demographic demographic trends, that looks at the way our country is moving and sees the writing on the wall and wants to plan and wants to make it harder for people who don't vote for them to vote. And so they want to do that preemptively and proactively. This is what they did with the courts, right? They saw that they needed to play a long game on getting people on the court. So they got people on the bench. They do this with candidates. They get candidates elected to city council and school board, and then they work their way up. They can play a long game here. And I think that's what they're doing. They will say that there's a need for, for election security because of voter fraud. There has not, that is not based in fact, but I will tell you one of the most disheartening things for me as a, as a communicator, as a leader is the sort of concept of the big lie, this continued misinformation that says that the election was stolen or that there was massive voter fraud and all of this is just incredibly damaging to our democracy. And when it's used to change policy, when it's used to impact people's ability to exercise their right to vote, that's when it gets offensive and personal. That's when it gets especially damaging. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you know, but my husband, and I I talk about this on the show, my husband is an AP US history teacher, and he's a historian, has his master's in history. And when I told him you were coming on the show, 
I said, what do you what do you want me to ask Jennifer? He's like, ask her if she think our democracy is going to die. And I was like, dude. <laughs> and and he's just, you know, my husband, he's pretty chill. He's not traumatic mm-hmm. at all. And he was just, he's like, I'm not sleeping well because of this. I'm really worried about this. And I'm worried that people don't care. So what actions can people take to learn more about this and do something about voter suppression wherever they live? Well, I mean, I don't think our democracy is dying and I think that we can't let it. Right. I mean, I, I'm, Good, I, don't, I agree. I don't doubt his worry. You know, I don't I don't I don't question his worry. I, I worry, too. Um, but it's not going to happen on our watch. Right. And so we're going to keep fighting. What we have to do is educate people. And that means people who are listening to this, people who are engaged, need to engage people, even if they're you know, spewing all the other stuff on Facebook. What has happened most regularly, and it's happened to me with Aunt Linda, right? When somebody starts posting all these things that are inaccurate, wrong, and you push back and you say, that's not true. And then they say, well, you're just, you know, a product of the deep state or whatever. You just give up because it's just too much. But we can't because they aren't. And so we have to keep pushing back. We have to keep every single day. Nope. Here's an example of why it's not voter suppression. Now, don't do that if it's not emotionally healthy for you. Like, it was important for me to cut yes. Antland out of my life. But if there are people who can, who you, even if you don't think you can get to them, you've got to get to those people and the people who aren't paying attention. Everybody's busy. We have soccer games and, you know, teacher conferences and jobs and lives. People aren't paying attention to voter suppression laws in Georgia. But we have to raise awareness about them and let them know what the true impact is. So I'm a big believer in storytelling. So whenever you can get a story, you know, somebody who um, sent her ballot in on a Thursday last time, and it didn't arrive until the next Wednesday, I want her to tell her story because she is a person who will be disenfranchised. It's not this crazy liberal they're trying to stop us from. It's a real person who maybe was gonna vote Republican, and you lost that, you'd lose that vote next time. And so storytelling is really important and making it personal for people. You just, it's not comfortable to talk about politics. It's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. I always say, this isn't talking about politics. This is talking about policy. And this is talking about democracy. Yeah, I, I used to keep that part of my story quiet, mm-hmm. the the political part. And that's it's such a part as you 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 do, you know, you know, mm-hmm. it's such a part of my passion because it became so polarizing and divisive in various circles that I was in. And now I'm like, no, I think it's just talking about it and remembering we're talking to humans who care and who have been hurt. And and so with that said, one of the things I remember hearing throughout my life and even wanting people to vote is people kept saying my vote won't make a difference. And and I didn't hear it as much in 2020. It's probably the first year I didn't come across anyone right. who said that and we saw that in the voter turnout. What do you say to those who didn't who think they can't make a difference around this or any of the issues that they care about? You know, I mean I I always now I get to tell people there was a congressional race in Iowa decided by two votes. A congressional race, <laughs> two votes, two people. Which who, which which district? Uh, the second. Which district? It was Rita Hart and Marionette Miller Meeks. It was decided by two wow. votes. There, I was recount laws are not great, and we've learned that now. And there were twenty two votes that weren't counted, so we'll never know who would have really won. But the it, the it was a lot like two thousand to me. I mean, you know, the race was just kind of stopped. But um, I tell them that. I mean, you know, you can try the idea that people fought and died for your right to do this. And it's a, it's a dishonor to them if you don't. 
So you can try the guilt route, right? Like there are women who literally died trying to get the right to vote. There are people who died on a bridge in Alabama who are fought for our right to vote. And you have to do it. I think making it easier for people to do it, understanding where people are and saying, let me help you vote, right? I know. But when they say my vote doesn't matter, I try to think about what that means. Do they feel unempowered? Do they feel like they're disconnected from their system? And how can we re-engage them that way? So, you know, somebody says this year, I'm not going to vote in 2022 because everybody I voted for lost in 2020. Mm. And okay, fine. So now we're going to work on a school board race and we're going to I'm going to get you, you know, aware of the candidates and you're going to figure out who to vote for. And you're going to find out your vote has a much bigger impact there, for example, or in city council races. And then, you know, try to connect people. I, what I say is that, okay, so here's an example. No one knows what their legislature does, right? No one knows who I am. I have no illusions that people are walking around wondering what Representative Conference is doing at the Capitol today. I get it. But on the 4th of July in 2017, my Facebook feed was filled with people furious about fireworks going off in our neighborhood. And I said, well, now you know what your legislature does. Back in February, they passed a law that allowed fireworks in residential neighborhoods all over the city, all over the state. That's your legislature. And people were like, oh, no, we're going to vote them out next time. And so connecting it to people's lives is really important, right? So if you can see, hey, did your property taxes go up? That's because of who you voted for, Polk County Supervisor or City Council, right? I mean, you just got that bill. So when the actions happen, connecting it to policy whenever possible. Now, is this easy for regular people to do? Of course not. But it's what we got to do. It's time consuming. I remember someone saying, I don't have time. A family member said, I think when I was working and he said, I don't have time to study all this stuff. I'm like, you go to the bathroom. You've got time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they didn't like the answer. No, they didn't no, like the answer. That's fair. fair. <laughs> You've got time on the toilet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I do think people feel that they don't have time to learn all of this, but reframing what you have to learn, right? You don't have to learn a ton. Just say, pick one issue that you really care about, then find out what the two candidates think about it. Right. And then move from there and then make a decision that way. Start slow. So I want to shift to something I saw you say. You you have this old adage that you reference. You can campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. And I researched that. And it's a quote linked back to governor of New York in the 1980s, Mario Cuomo. Can you walk us through what this means and why you believe it is an important mindset for leaders today? I think because for me, it's so what it means is that on the campaign trail, you talk about big issues, right? I think it's important that we protect a woman's right to make our own healthcare decisions. I think it's important that we protect the right to vote. I think it's important that workers have a right to have a say in their own in their own workplace safety. And those are big issues. And that's what people cares, care about, right? So you campaign in flowery language and big picture, and you give the impression, not because you're trying to be be evasive or, or trying to overpromise, but because that's what the conversation is about. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then you govern in prose, a lot less pretty, a lot uglier, a lot more minutia-driven, right? So I have a, a constituent who is autistic and wanted new laws, autism coverage in the state of Iowa and care for kids at school. So, you know, awesome. in this conversation, I say to her, absolutely, we're going to go. I talk to her daughter. She wants it. She writes me a letter. It's very meaningful. I'm going to introduce a bill. And I'm thinking, this is this is poetry, right? This is a story. This girl and her mom need help. I am going to fix it. 
I take my bill, I file it away, and I hit pros <laughs> immediately because now the bill is being negotiated and, oh, well, we can't do all of that because of this, this, and this, and we can't just go this big. We have to start slow. And so it's a much more nuanced process. So, yeah. So so for me, no, that's I, what I, I, I like that. Go ahead. I, I think it means that you think-, t- think big, and then when you get there, you have to go a little more incremental. Yeah. And it's such a that I, I like that because we talk about, at least in the clinical world I, and e- even in my leadership work, the difference between content and process, right? Mm-hmm. The process is how we go about it. Like you said, the big vision and the content is getting in the weeds. Mm-hmm. And especially with legislation, it's like the weeds and the weeds and the weeds and conversations and negotiations. And, you know, and that's why I, I, I paused when I, I saw this phrase that you uttered, because I think for me, my impatience, my sense of urgency, my love of efficiency gets annoyed with the pros, but there, I still have a deep respect for it. And I think it's easy to tap out, but sometimes that's part of the work of just engaging in humans, being a good citizen is a lot of times it's being a good neighbor yeah. is pros. Exactly. <laughs> being a good family member is pros sometimes. It just drives so. me crazy. And I know, I mean, there was a woman, a, a legislator who's been working for 20 years on a bill, 20 years. And it's a bill to allow adoptive um, adults who were um, placed for adoption access to their original birth certificate in Iowa. You don't have access to that. Now they will. Oh, wow. And it's taken her wow. 20 years. And oh, she, that's pros. she spoke on the floor the other night. Right. And then it became poetry again because she was able to speak about why this was so important and how she had given her daughter up and how her daughter was able to find her. And it was just really meaningful. So it's the middle part. That's the ugly poetry. Right. But at the end, you hope you get to prose. I think it's important as a leader because it's important to understand that expectations and reality clash so frequently, but you can't let the fact that you didn't meet your goal today, your big flowery poetic goal mean that you failed. You have to understand the ugly day-to-day process of it. Otherwise, it's like that idea of a CEO and a COO. My husband and I joke about how one of us is the CEO. That's me. I come in with the big ideas. We're going to fix this room. We're going to paint this room. And then I go away and he's like, well, now I got to buy paint. Right. And here's how I want to do it. And, and, you know, and we work together that well, well, because of that, but it's both, I think. And, it, and it's, it's understanding that it's a long game. Maybe that's what I mean. Just that it's a long game and you have to be willing to play. And I appreciate you identifying kind of the vision and then the expectations of that vision mm-hmm. coming to fruition. And I think that really is an endurance game and an expectations game. But sometimes I get so optimistic and even can tip towards idealistic that it it trips me up, Jennifer. I have to confess. I still am like, ah, oh, dang it. Same. <laughs> Eat some humble pie. Didn't I tell you I cried <laughs> on the drive home last night? I mean, I get it. It's healthy. And it That's is healthy. Let it out. And, Let it out. And I got to say, too, I, ha- I feel that way about justice and social justice, too. Mm. I mean, you know, the Dr. King quote about the arc of the moral universe is sort of another way to say poetry and prose. I mean, you know, our goal and the way we get there are different. You know, our arc is big, but the everyday plotting is how we get there eventually. And so it's not fun to be down here sometimes, right, when you want to be flying. No. It's not sexy and it often isn't, we don't get the external validation. You have to be committed to your values and, I, and it, the issues, but more importantly, like you noted, the people yeah. that you're serving. So let me shift again. You come, like I mentioned earlier in the interview, you come from old school, gold standard journalism lineage. Your father is a legend status reporter for the AP. 
And we both were trained from some very skilled leaders in the journalism at our alma mater, Drake University. Very proud of that. Want to give a shout out, rest in peace to Rhonda Menke, a dear, dear Menke mentor of ours. I still miss her deeply. We are in, we're also in a time where fake news claims, you know, shuts down anything meaningful in a conversation, even proper vetting. So you and I were even trained that blogging was an opinion column in a newspaper, but now it's seen as hard news, right? So how do leaders navigate the fire hose of information coming their way? How do we navigate that? What do you tell people about this when you teach in your journalism classes? It's really hard. And, and fake news is one of the things that I go out and give talks on as part in part of my role at Drake is how to circumvent fake news. And I think that people are so hungry for context because of that fire hose of news that when you give them the mm. tools to find that context, when you can say, do you know about Snopes? Do you know about PolitiFact? Do you know that there's some place on the same computer where you're getting all this information where you can go find out more? Um, people feel empowered because I think that flood of misinformation is overwhelming. And so I try to give people the tools they need to dig a little deeper on their own without having to invest a ton of time and go see if it's true. You know, we teach people in nursing homes how to do a reverse image search on Google. You know, see that plane crash that you see in this fake news story that's on your feed? That's a FedEx plane from 1987. And if you search the image, you'll see it's been used in like seven different stories over the years, right? And so helping oh, wow. people get that context, it's very overwhelming and can can make people want to just hide. And so that's what I've seen. And so giving them some power back and helping cons- news consumers fight back a little bit and find out on their own. The hard part, Rebecca, is getting them to do the next step, which is to tell other people that it's wrong. So Mm. because people don't want conflict, you know. You and I are a little unique in that area, huh? (laughs) Yes. Yes. We have, Um, we're not shy about that part um, to our benefit, mostly, but yeah. And (laughs) also also to our detriment. (laughs) And particularly our our, our amazing partners that rumble rumble with us. Patience beyond (laughs) patience, in my case. (laughs) We married well. We We married well. So, Thank you for that. I love that you actually do this kind of education, like in nursing homes and out in the public, just talking about fake news. So I want to ask you, how does viral news impact quality news, especially in politics? Well, it makes it just makes it just much worse. Right. And it impacts policy because it used to be when my dad was covering the legislature, the story would come out after the bill had passed. Now a tweet might come out in the middle of debate from a reporter. And then, or a rumor might spread through the Capitol pretty fast because of Twitter. And now all of a sudden people are changing their votes or we're going to caucus because we're going to do something different. The problem, some people say, well, that's great, right? It's, it's nimble. It's, you know, being able to move on the fly. The problem with that is there's not context created or with it. And so, you know, it used to be by the time a a story got, I sound so old, by the time a story got posted or published, they had talked to people on both sides. It had been looked at by an editor who had said, eh, I'm not sure this is right, or eh, let's make sure that we're framing this differently. There'd been a third-party validator looking at it, right? None of that happens anymore, and and things get spread so quickly that I do think it's, well, of course, it's hurt news. It's hurt our business. It's made reporters have to be bloggers and tweeters and videographers and you know graphics designers and all those things instead of focusing on the news and you hear it from them all the time it's just incredibly frustrating 
And it goes back to that quote and that the pros, sometimes we demonize what they call bureaucracy. And and again, I've worked in all levels of government. Sometimes it's ridiculous. Now, actually, a lot of times there's, there's still a lot of things we need to do better, yeah. but there's also a lot of heroes in government. And I, that's what I saw in, in my experiences too. Um, and if we are looking at efficiency and expediency, if that's the goal, and you know, what's interesting, I'm in this training right now and I read this article and I'll post it to the show notes that one of the symptoms of the system of white supremacy is urgency. Mm-hmm. And it hit me like between the eyes because I, I love efficiency and get this done. And there's an urgency. Let's fix it. Have a solution. Be done with wow. it. And I just I sat with that and that that was convicting wow. on many levels. And so when I think of what you're just saying with politics, there's times in crisis when I mean, I remember Iowa wrestled and has several times with natural disasters. Mm-hmm. We need expediency then. We need resolutions. We need things, you know, but when it comes to the, it's not forgetting about the people that we're serving, whether it's in politics, whether it's in an online business, whether it's in your nonprofit, your school, your home, your real estate business, whatever that may be, we're working with humans, with people. So I want to wrap up with asking how can leaders themselves be better consumers of journalism Mm -hmm. and how they better discern what information they, they share, they disseminate. So the advice that I always give is, especially as leaders, we have a responsibility that's even greater, I think, than someone who isn't in a position of of leadership to judiciously share content and to share content in a way that we feel is contributing to the conversation in a positive, meaningful, thoughtful way. Mm. I think we have to, it's our job. And so it's it's a burden of leadership. I know this is unburdened leadership, but it is one of our, <laughs> one of our things. So I suggest that people, you know, we, we, I mean, I wish there was a pause button on retweet where it said, are you sure? And Twitter's trying this a little bit, but you know, you, you find out if the story is covered by anything else before you share it, right? Especially breaking news. You know, is this being, today's the anniversary that they were recording this of the Boston Marathon bombing. Just a horrible, oh my a gosh. lot of examples of bad journalism there, right? A lot of examples of bad journalism that day because people were trying to huh. be first. So making sure it's been covered by someone else, you know, as a leader, we don't need to be first. We don't have to be the first one to tell somebody news. You and I as journalism majors love to be the first person to tell people things. That's part of our, our DNA, but, you know, making sure it's written by a reputable source. What else has the author written? Click on the author's name and see what else she's written. Look to see if it's coming from a website that has a particular point of view. None of this is to say you should stop sharing it after that but understand what you're sharing before you do. And I think a lot of that comes from what you just talked about, about urgency, right? Why is it so important that I tell this or that I share this now? Isn't it something that I can spend another half an hour looking at before I share it so that I can make sure that what I'm putting my name, my reputation behind is accurate, helpful, and contributes, you know? And I think that that's, I think the pause, right, is a really important part of what we do always. And I'm going to sit with that quote about white supremacy and urgency a lot because we see it at the Capitol a lot. I'm not talking about white supremacy necessarily. I'm talking about the hidden curriculum of a legislature, the hidden curriculum of college, right? Language that other people don't understand and that's used to the advantage of those who are in power. Um, systems that people it. don't understand, right? So. Totally. So, yeah. Gosh, Jennifer, 
If listeners wanted to connect with you, where can people find you, follow you, learn more from you and about you? I would love it. I am, my website is jenniferconfirst.com, which is K-O-N-F-R-S-T. It looks wrong, but it's right. I'm like first without an I. Um, And then I'm jconfirst, K-O-N-F-R-S-T on Twitter. And then all my contact information's on there too. So I love conversations. I love to talk about this stuff. So anyone should feel free to reach out. Thank you so much for being here. I I will say when I talk about you, I say, watch, watch my friend. She's going to be going places. Do you have any ambitions or thoughts about other elected offices? Anything you're dreaming about? I got to tell you, I really, and this isn't a political answer. I really love the Iowa House. I would love to someday be, I'd like to stay in the house and and get some work there done. It's scrappy. It's fast. It's, it's accessible and uh, it's loud and a lot of really good stuff can happen there if we get, we get in charge. So. That's really all I think about. I love it. I have a feeling that someone's going to come knocking in the future for some other things. So you heard it here first. (laughs) Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you're doing and I appreciate your heart and your leadership. Thank you so much for your time. Right back at you, Rebecca. Thank you. The choice to stay engaged in the process that supports our democracy may feel like an exhausting intellectual exercise that is detached from the day-to-day grind. Well, it's not. Staying engaged is an investment in your impact as a leader. And right now, there is a fight for how our democracy is run. It has been chipped away for a while, and now with over 300 bills in various states attempting to change how we elect our local, state, and federal leaders, and who can engage in this process. Because so much is at stake. State Representative Jennifer Confer shared the power of listening to her constituents and staying informed by their needs helped her stay engaged and kept her showing up when the noise from her opponents was loud and the attacks got really personal. This focus fueled her even when she wanted to tap out and inspires her in her commitments, even in the slog of failure after failure. There is a lot we can learn from how Jennifer moved from the desire to tap out. Listening to those we are serving and staying focused on the big picture is a huge learning. How can you support the spaces you lead to be more engaged in the political process while staying grounded in your values? What support do you need to increase your capacity for holding space for feedback and hard conversations? And how do you make space for rest? when you're ready to give up and tap out. Stay engaged. Gosh, please stay engaged and do the work to push back on those who are counting on you to get overwhelmed and tap out. Leading is hard. In these days, it feels exceptionally hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. You don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or bragging rights. 
It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If you want to help support this show, please subscribe, download, and share with someone you may think appreciates this episode. And if you are particularly valued this episode, I'd be honored if you left a review. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.